Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We come to a part of scripture this morning with which you may think yourself entirely uh, familiar. It has been called the story heard round the world. It has even found its way into our uh, legal parlance. Maybe you've heard of the so-called Good Samaritan laws. In our uh, litigious day and age, people are afraid of being sued, even of giving aid to an injured person along the way, uh, for fear that uh, that could lead to a lawsuit. Well, the Good Samaritan laws are on the books with the intention of protecting those who choose to serve and to tend to the needs of others who are injured or ill. Their purpose, of course, is to free hesitant bystanders to render aid uh, without fear of being prosecuted for unintentional injury or even uh, death of those whom they seek genuinely and reasonably to help. How interesting, though, that we should immediately come to this matter of uh, the law. Uh, Who was it who raised this question and set this whole ball rolling in the first place? It was, of course, a lawyer in this text we're about to read, only he's not looking for opportunities to help. On the contrary, he's looking for ways to avoid helping, uh, but still somehow gaining eternal life himself. I think that he is a part of that group that Jesus has just described in the last few verses and that we considered uh, recently. In his prayer to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And now, as if on cue, writes Luke, behold a lawyer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you will open our eyes and our hearts to receive your word and that your spirit will move in us. Father, you have said that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish all that for which you uh, set out. And so we pray that that's exactly what will happen now this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 10.25, and behold, a lawyer stood up uh, to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do To inherit eternal life. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It was during the cool morning, just a little past dawn of what would become a hot, sticky day in Chicago, that I sat a young college student in the passenger seat of a straight truck, training to perform a summer job of delivering eggs and produce to restaurants in the Chicago Loop and outlying suburbs. I was enjoying the view of the buildings around us, the feeling of the electricity of a bustling city, people rushing to work across the walkway right in front of the hood of that truck as we sat there at the red light. When I saw a curious sight, it was a a man uh, leaning out of the fifth or sixth or seventh story window of a building uh, ahead in the distance, Uh, maybe a half a block, something like that in front of us. In he went back in and then he poked back out and then suddenly airborne. He hurled himself out of the window and fell to the sidewalk. The girl at whose feet he landed, uh, understandably, you know, pulled up her hands and recoiled in horror and, and turned the other direction, repulsed by the sight. But what followed uh, is the thing that made the deepest impression on me, uh, total and utter indifference. Busy pedestrians, briefcase in hand, some with cardboard, you know, cup of coffee in the other, either stepped around or over this person. It was as though a sack of potatoes, you know, lay there on the sidewalk. Nothing more. Nobody rushed to the man to see if perhaps he was still alive and in need of aid. It truly amazed me. And I learned that day just how completely callous and cold and heartless We've become coolly dispassionate and detached from the needs or even potential needs of those around us. Actually, it's not a new phenomenon since the fall of mankind alongside the eternity that God has placed in our hearts. There dwells also murder. Along with the law that God has written on our hearts, there exists Also, hatred and selfishness and pride, all the things that set themselves up directly against that law. And none of us is exempt, not one. So we're not going to be quick to condemn this lawyer who puts Jesus to the test. There's there's another who condemns, so we need not spend our energy judging this 
man. Rather, Dr. Luke would have us look at him closely and see if there is not far too much still in us that is far too much like him and needs still to be removed and replaced by the grace of God at work in us. I mentioned here that he's putting Jesus to the test, and that's exactly what he is doing. It's his intent to make Jesus look foolish. And if he can make himself look better in the eyes of his comrades in the process, why all the better? Turns out, however, that he is asking the wrong questions. But Jesus, nevertheless, is going to give him the right answers. Jesus has a canny ability for that sort of thing, for turning the tables on those who would try to put him under one. The whole conversation really consists of two parts, both of them, in turn, consisting of a question and an answer. The first question has to do with eternal life. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A straightforward enough question, but it comes with a with a twist, to say nothing of the twisted tongue, uh, in the Greek tense in which he asks, what he means is, what is the thing that he can do? Literally, he asks, having done what will I inherit eternal life? As if to say that, you know, one single deed, something to sort of check off, um, would, would gain him eternal life. What's the magic bullet? What's the What's the hoop through which I must jump to inherit eternal life? It's something of a mixed question, too, isn't it? Even a self-contradictory question. He asks what he can do, what he shall do, having done what, shall I have eternal life? On the other hand, he seems to acknowledge that eternal life has to be given, has to be granted as an inheritance. That's the kind of confusion that was typical of the Judaism of that day. There's still some sense of grace, some sense of God's granting of eternal life. And there were some indeed in Jesus' day who really were still trusting and resting upon God's grace for eternal life. More common, however, and thrown into this muddled mix was the idea that salvation was to be earned through good works. Or as in this lawyer's question, by some particular good work. Either way, it all boiled down to religious performance. Great is Torah, went one rabbinical saying, that is, great is the law, for it gives to them that practice it life in this world and in the world to come. That was something the rabbis would say. Do this, get that. That was the religion of the church in Jesus' day. Have things changed much? Quid pro quo continues to be the majority report among religions today, even of what much much of what passes for Christianity. Do this, get that. How many people have you not heard say even to you that they were quite convinced that on the judgment day, the good things they've done will outweigh the bad? 
right? I'm okay. I've done more good things than bad. Anyway, Jesus answers this self-righteous and contemptuous lawyer on his own terms. But in the process, he reclaims the agenda of the whole conversation. Verse 26, he says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now you understand, I call the man a lawyer. By that term lawyer, what is, what is meant is someone who well understood the Torah. He was an expert in the law of God. Adeptly, he demonstrates this expertise in his answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's a perfect answer. Give that guy a straight A for the day. Uh, That's exactly what God's law says in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus in particular, from which he is quoting. Give that man a cigar. So Jesus says, effectively, do it. Do it, and you'll live. I hear the Greek is helpful again because Jesus answers in the present tense. In other words, he says, do this and continue to do it. Not just as on the lawyer's terms, you know, do this good thing or that or what, having done what, will I have secured eternal life. Rather, live the life that you've just described to me from the law of God Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And while you're at it, love your neighbor as yourself, and you will have eternal life. Easy as that, right? Now understand something. This this answer put this lawyer in in a bind in a couple of ways. On one level, it made him look pretty stupid, (laughs) pretty foolish. He could hear the snickers now, you know, of people around him in the crowd. Jesus had just bested him at his own duel of words in front of everyone. Jesus has just brought this fellow who thought he was going to make himself, this great lawyer, look good by tripping up the rabbi. Brought him back, I say, right back to the ABCs of his children's catechism class. Love God. Love your neighbor. Look at the scoreboard. Jesus won. (laughs) Lawyer. Zip. On another level, though, a much more important one, Jesus has just shown him, if he has the eyes to see it, how hopeless is his cause. Jesus has answered the lawyer on his own terms. That's key to understanding this whole conversation. Jesus is answering the lawyer on his own terms, and an answering has shown him on his terms that he can't get eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. If I were to ask for a raising of hands right now, how many of you could honestly tell me that you have loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength for five, no, not five minutes, five seconds straight? 
Or who of us has really loved his neighbor as himself? We had to confess it. We just did a little while ago in our confession of sin. We use those very words. We have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, or our neighbors as our own flesh. Fact is, there is not a single person in the hearing of my voice right now who has fulfilled the law of God perfectly. None of us, not a single one of us, will find ourselves in heaven because we've done this and lived. There's no one who is righteous, not one. That's the Bible's own verdict for every one of us. We are all law-breaking sinners. We, we, we sin as we breathe. I think this lawyer knows it too. I think he, he realizes instantly, not only that you're trying to make himself look wise, he actually has made himself look foolish, but somewhere deep inside... Remember, I mentioned that law of God written on the heart. I think somewhere deep inside he realizes he hasn't kept the law of God either. And I think you realize it too. You haven't kept God's law, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? Do you actually imagine that you can get eternal life if starting right this minute... You try with might and main to be very, very good. You've tried that before, haven't you? How long did it last? How long did you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength above everything else? How long did that last? How, how long was it before you stopped loving your neighbor and went back to lusting after her again? How long before your best intentions to go, do good to that cranky guy at work turned back into just trying your best to avoid him? How soon was it after you started trying really, really hard to be good that you failed to help that person who needed your aid? And do you really think, do you imagine that the good things you've done, so-called, outweigh the bad, really? When the very best things you've done have been shot through with, with mixed motives at best? Do you think that God, who looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart, will receive your so-called good works as payment for the bad? For the sinful thoughts, the, the idle words, not in the evil that you have done, but maybe even more, the good that you've left undone? I hope that none of you suffers this morning from such delusions as that. We are not law keepers in ourselves. In fact, we're habitual law breakers. I say, I think this lawyer was coming to feel a sense of that too. 
of his own deficiency, of his own falling short of the glory of God, but instead of humbling himself right on that spot before God, instead of falling down before Christ, acknowledging and confessing his sins to the Lord, I'm a sinful man, forgive me, O Lord, instead of pleading for the washing away of his sins and for the granting of the free gift of eternal life, which is Jesus to give. Instead, he hardens himself all the more. So round two. Maybe he can save face. Maybe he can sort of pull this thing out of the nosedive it's been in. Maybe he can squelch his own conscience too at the same time by pulling a legal thread and following that. So the second question, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? (laughs) This poor fella. He's dug himself a huge hole, and now he's just digging himself deeper. But isn't this what we all do? Faced with the impossibly high standard demands of God's law, what we're instantly tempted to do is to pare down that law, isn't it? To reduce the demands of the law, to lower the bar of God's law and make it actually attainable, make it something that we can actually you know, keep or imagine that we keep anyway. You see, if he can chisel down his neighborhood... <laughs> A little bit. Maybe, maybe he can say that he's actually done that much. He's, he's loved his neighbor as himself. This too, by the way, is a quintessentially Jewish thing to do in Jesus' day. They had narrowed the neighborhood down to just fellow Jews, just you know, other people in the covenant community. So they were no longer responsible to, to love uh, the neighbor's the way the Torah, the way the law of God actually requires, not only the love of the neighbor whom you know and maybe even like, but of the stranger too, and even the enemy. At any rate, Jesus turns the tables again. In fact, he turns the question from the lawyer right around and delivers a reverse trap. Now, this is the brilliance of of Jesus and work. If you or I had been standing there, uh, even if it had occurred to us, pulling together all of our wisdom, uh, even if it occurred to us to tell a story, uh, we would have told a story about a Jew who was making his way down the road and he saw a Samaritan who was beaten up and, and uh, instead of helping him, he just left him there to die. You know, how terrible we would have been trying to say in our illustration, how terrible for that Jew to ignore that Samaritan in need. But we would have left that lawyer completely unmoved and maybe even deeply, more deeply entrenched in his view. Of course, he would have said to us, Samaritans aren't worth the time of day. You know, a bunch of half-breed idolaters. They aren't, they aren't worth, worth making yourself unclean over. Jew, that Jew did exactly what he should have done, the lawyer would have said to us. You might know from your Bible that there was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other's guts. You might remember, as a matter of fact, when the the Jews, in their hatred and spite for Jesus, wanted really 
to cut him down, really to say the worst they could about him. They accused him, you might remember, of being a Samaritan. But Jesus approaches the whole thing backwards. Sure, he uses a story, but he uses an injured Jew, ostensibly a Jew. He's come from Jerusalem, so we, I think we can surmise that much. He's been taken by bandits, and that's not surprising to any of his hearers either. The road is a steep one and dangerous. In fact, it was nicknamed the Bloody Way. It uh, actually d- drops 2,000 feet in ev- elevation between Jerusalem and Jericho through the mountains, pocked with crags and caves and so on. It was a robber's paradise. They beat him. Uh, they stripped him of his clothes. They left him half dead. A priest comes by. You'd hope a priest. <laughs> You'd hope a priest would stop. And who would you expect to stop more than a man of the cloth, you know? But he doesn't. He passes by on the other side of the road. A Levite does the same thing. And we might have understood in the priest's case, you know, they were forbidden from touching dead bodies. And in case this guy really was dead, you know, okay, we can cut the priest a little slack. He didn't want to break uh, that law anyway. The Levite, uh, he does the same. He's, he doesn't want to touch a dead body, but probably because he doesn't want to become unclean and therefore disqualified uh, from worship and have to go through the you know, ritual to become clean again, all of that. Maybe they were both afraid of uh, the same thing happening to them. If they paused there long enough, those same robbers may not uh, be very far away. At any rate, they both steered clear of the man, but alas, they also steered wide clear of the law of God, of the Torah itself that requires that we care for a stranger in need. And a certain stroke of irony here, if you will understand uh, the polity of the church, the Levites were the deacons. Of the church. So now you've got the priest and you've got the deacon who's in charge of distributing alms and caring for the poor and so on. Both of them pass him by. But now Jesus lights the fuse. A Samaritan. <laughs> if he didn't have their attention by now, now he has it. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw him and had compassion. Went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, so disinfected his wounds and treated them. He sat him, uh, placed him on his own animal, took him uh, to the inn to take care of him. The next day he takes out extra money, gives it to the innkeeper, take care of him. When I get back, if it costs more, I'll pay more. You could have heard a pin drop when Jesus said that. And now Jesus slides in the knife. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? What's the lawyer going to say? What's the obvious answer? Of course, it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now the lawyer had started the second round of this verbal jousting by trying to justify himself 
Just who is my neighbor anyway, Jesus? Jesus says, wrong question. Here's the real question. Whose neighbor are you? To whom have you proven yourself a neighbor? The lawyer, I shouldn't wonder, walked away from this conversation scratching his head and wondering where in the world it all went so wrong. You know, he was so completely bested by Jesus at his own game. Wouldn't it be great to find out someday that he came finally to understand upon reflecting in the whole thing by the power of the Holy Spirit in him that, that he couldn't keep the law after all? At the way he had started round one by asking how he could, you know, by doing what shall I inherit eternal life? Maybe somewhere behind this mocking test of his, maybe there was even something as he was digging for this formula, something uh, really on his heart. He should have learned through this conversation that he, he couldn't achieve anything. Oh, good grief, he couldn't even be as good as a Samaritan in a story. Wouldn't it be great to find out that, that like a year or so later, word came to that same lawyer about this same Jesus, except this time news of his death on the cross, and that accompanied with an explanation that it was a death died in the place of sinners, like you and me, who cannot achieve salvation, but who can, by God's grace, through faith, receive salvation. Jesus, it turns out, was the ultimate neighbor. We were not half dead, like the man on Jesus, in Jesus' story on the road there. We were, spiritually speaking, what I suspect that man in Chicago that morning on that sidewalk was, physically speaking, we were, we were dead. We were dead in our sins. Jesus didn't merely cross the road to come to our aid. As we celebrate again in this coming Christmas season, he came an infinite distance from the throne of heaven to a Bethlehem manger. He not only bound up our wounds, he suffered wounds, mortal wounds. He bled. He died for us. Saving us did not cost him a couple of denarii. It cost him his very life. As one commentator put it, we were not his neighbors, nor he ours. But he chose by incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that human beings hounded him to the cross, he rescued us at his own expense and has paid in advance for the cost of completing our redemption and perfecting us for unimaginable glory. I don't know if the lawyer ever got it. But I do know this. I would that every one of you in the hearing of my voice right now would get this. 
would receive eternal life, the only way it can be received through faith. As Jesus said on another occasion, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Amen.